Welcome to another exciting... <laughs> I can't because I walk around my house doing this every day. You're deranged, but go on. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best Murder, She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. We are talking today about Season 3, Episode 21, The Days Dwindle Down. This is a kind of unusual episode, TJ. Why don't you give us a summary? All right. Well, what makes it unusual is that rather than just being sort of a cut and dry mystery like we usually get, in this case, it's actually piggybacking off of, you guessed it, a classic Hollywood film noir called Strange Bargain. And in this episode, Jessica sets out to basically rescue someone who was falsely convicted of a murder 30 years prior, but which was, in fact, a suicide. And it's a whole big, complicated, very film noirish plot. It wasn't actually a suicide. Right, but wasn't actually a suicide. So, well, so, yes. So anyway, Jessica has to then try to prove and figure out with the pieces of evidence that have survived, as well as interviewing relative, you know, the people involved in the whole affair, who was responsible. And it turns out he was innocent. But it's fascinating because for much of the episode, we get flashbacks to the actual film, which is really extraordinary. Like, I mm-hmm. I was really kind of, I know my mom had told me that she really likes this episode. I think she was watching it the last time I was home, but I wasn't paying that much attention. But once we started watching it for the pod, I was like, wow, what an interesting conceit to use to make Marty Shirot like an unofficial sequel, or I guess quasi-official sequel, to an already established film. Yeah, film from Lansbury's era of Hollywood. Yeah. Not that Lansbury wasn't in the movie, but like, it's really interesting as a choice, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, especially since we have so many flashbacks to the, you know, to the diegesis of the film. But then we also have set three of the sort of key cast members from the film returning, playing the same characters within the diegesis yes. of Murder, She Wrote. So it's really a very fascinating intertextual relationship between these two, you know, widely different mediums you know one being of course a film released in the 40s like the ho- b film noir yeah from the you know from the classic hollywood period and now we're in 1980s network television so it's really just yeah. sort of two very distinct visual narrative styles being sort of smushed together and a very and it works like that's what surprises me is just how effectively it manages to put all these things together i it's also fascinating that you know one of Murder, She Wrote's shticks has always been to have these classical Hollywood guest actors, right? And that the fun is, like, for the contemporary at the time audience um, to see them, you know, older and see what they're doing now. And I think this, in many ways, is, like, the absolute epitome of that, right? Because we literally get to see what they looked like in 1949 in these flashbacks. And so we have that juxtaposition between their 1949 self and their 1987 self. And I think that's that's really fascinating. And one of them is Harry Morgan, um, which is just really fun, right? Because this is post-MASH also. It is post-MASH. And I always, I love seeing Harry Morgan in anything. Yeah, he's really. pretty likable. He plays the detective in this. He does. And he always looks the same. Like, he always looked old. Like, even if, if you <laughs> look at the, the film noir, he looks not all that dissimilar to himself 30 years later. Yeah. I think also narratively that um, what is so fascinating to me is um, the way that the episode rewrites the movie. Mm-hmm. But it feels pretty seamless, right? So in the movie, the solution is ultimately that the guy the guy was trying to kill himself for the insurance money. He asks his employee to help. 
um, make it look like a murder so that his family can get the payout. And then uh, his wife actually, like, killed him. Right. But by accident. Like, she was trying to help keep him from killing himself. And then she... That's in the TV show. Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah, in the TV show. Yeah, in the movie, she just kills him. Oh, And then the employee is like, hey, I know you killed him. And then she tries to kill him, too. So she's, like, much more evil. And Murder, She Wrote kind of undoes that ending. Mm -hmm. Um, And is like, well, no, actually what happened was she walked in on her husband trying to commit suicide and was trying to prevent it. And the gun went off. And so tragically, she ends up killing him when she was – what she wanted to do was save his life. Right, which is, of course, a complete inversion of Noir's usual, like, bone-deep, depressing cynicism. Right? So that's a really interesting choice on noir. On, sorry, Murder She Wrote's part, and we've already seen you know Murder She Wrote's conversancy with noir as an aesthetic, noir as a sensibility, even as noir as a genre. So it's really especially interesting to see it make this you know flipping the story and flipping the and making it a total cozy story, mm-hmm. right? Because that is an ending that is totally versant with how the cozy works. Yep. Was Some a- killer who didn't mean to do it is really sad they did it. You know, it's been a tragedy. Uh, they, I mean, they essentially turn the movie into a cozy, which is really fascinating to me. Right, of all the movies to take and turn into a cozy, a film noir. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but it, I mean, but somehow, Meredith, she wrote, such as its power, it manages to make it convincing. You think? I mean, I thought so, but I'm... You're super into this episode. I am super into it, and I'm also just a very credulous viewer. Like, I will generally take what a movie feeds me. Which is why mystery films always work really great. Because I'm like, oh, I wonder who did it. Because I'm too stupid to figure out. You don't sit around like trying to figure out who did it. No. Or why I'll be like a twist coming. I'll be like, oh, that I didn't see that coming. So I feel like what we need to do is also keep track of how many times you say credulous viewer in this podcast. Because it's starting to get up there with Grace Note. Which I haven't used in a while. I know. I We kind of let that one go, which is fine. But you definitely talk about being a credulous viewer a lot. It's kind of my thing. It's one of my shticks. It's one of my... Yeah. It's a key part of my identity as a viewing subject. It's a key part of your identity. As a viewing subject. <laughs> it frames everything... It frames however I view the moving image. It, oh my god, you're just... It's just... Okay, stop being a nerd. Let's move on. What do you want to talk about? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? It's your podcast. You're just here to look pretty. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about the guest actors for a second, because mm. we said Harry Morgan is in it, and we love him. And um, I I just want to call attention to two things, which is, um, one, we there's a moment when somebody walks on frame, and I just think, why the fuck is Grady's wife here pregnant by somebody else? Because we have Debbie Zip in this episode, and Debbie Zip is actually married to Michael Horton, who plays Grady, and in later seasons, she plays a woman who falls in love with Grady, and they get engaged, and they eventually get married and have a kid. Oh, well, I... Um, so this is her first murder she wrote appearance, which is really fun, but she's not playing Donna, who is Grady's paramour. She's playing a different character. I love when murder she wrote does that. Um, but it, it offended my sensibilities to see her pregnant by somebody else in this. I mean, it feels like a grievous betrayal of of our beloved Grady. That's what I'm saying. It's like she had this whole past life she didn't tell him about. I think probably for contemporary audiences, probably the most exciting thing is um, Edna Jarvis, the widow Mm -hmm. of the guy who died, is played by Gloria Stewart. Yep. And we all, we, our generation, Teach, we know Gloria Stewart. From, well, many things, but... 
It's been 80 years. Yep, from Titanic. Titanic. She's the old lady she in the Titanic. Indeed. And she's old Rose. And she lived to be 100, by the way. Okay, but it wasn't... It, 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 it had been 80 years. Yeah, that's the right line, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's the one that people meme but all the time. I know, they do. That's why I did it. But, like, she'd be so old then. She'd be, like, 100. Yeah. They took a 100-year-old yeah, lady out I mean, on a boat to look for the sunken Titanic. I mean, Betty White was still getting around, and she was 99, so... That's true. Also, I don't particularly like Titanic. I'm shocked. <laughs> I mean, I loved it when I was 17, but... It's a sweet, bittersweet melodrama. Of course you love it. Yes, of course anyway, I like it. So she's in that, and she's in this. Um, we also have this guy who plays Jarvis's son... Uh, what's his name? Um, Sydney. No, that's not right. Yeah. Well, here's why um, I don't know the actor's name. Is because honestly, I just wrote down Lee Nollis because he plays this character called Shit. Lee Nollis in the three-part season two opener of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He's a really important character. And these were three episodes that I had on videotape that I watched so much the tape wore out and I could say every line of dialogue in the second part. And in fact, recently went back and watched that episode for the first time in like, 20 years and i could still say every line of dialogue i'm I'm impressed which has nothing to do with murder she wrote oh but richard bamer is that who you're thinking of yeah anyway he confesses to killing his dad in this because he's trying to protect his mom right and he even and this is an interesting twist like he even sneaks into jessica's hotel room and shoots at her right but intentionally misses now, here's where I'm not a credulous viewer because he explains that he meant to miss to misdirect them from thinking that his mom had killed the dad because mom's locked up in a home in a wheelchair. So obviously she can't go around to hotels shooting people. Right. But that doesn't make any sense to me because even if mom had shot dad, couldn't she just tell the kid to go shoot Jessica? Yeah, that was one of the sort of less believable parts of the story. <laughs> I mean, because it's clear why it's there. It's there to hook the viewer in the in the opening when it's like tonight on murder she wrote and then we see the yeah well they i mean we see him like firing at her we see the gun in a close-up and then it's a cut to a commercial yep. break like it's really scary like how on earth is jessica gonna survive being shot at close range like that right it's like when um dick van dyke's character gets blown up and then diagnosis murder like how is he gonna survive this yeah but obviously they both survive <laughs> They both survive. I guess an incredulous viewer would not be that terrified for Jessica because obviously she's going to come back after the commercial break. It's her show. But it's scary. But it's it, there is a certain kind of, yeah, I was going to say, there is a certain kind mm -hmm. of like creepy pleasure, if you will, to like wondering yeah. how it's going to happen. Like we know, obviously, they're not going to kill Jessica Fletcher at right. the tail end of the third season. But we like we are still invited to be emotionally invested enough to be wondering what are the mechanics by which the narrative is going to get her out of this scrape. That's a really smart way of saying what I was trying to say. Thank you. That's what I'm here for. I'm not just a pretty face. Also, just the commercial break, too. Like, the structure of network television uh -huh. in the 80s. And I think that, you know, having those sort of emotional climaxes and cliffhangers right before a commercial break and you, you spend the next two minutes, you know, like, sort of sweating about what's going to happen – 
and you don't want to get up from your seat. And it's a great way to glue the audience to watching the episode and watching the commercials that are paying for the episode. Mm -hmm. But it also is just like, I think it's just a sort of emotionally fun as a viewer to have those breaks. Yeah. We don't always see that in streaming. Like some streaming still seems to operate that way, but a lot of it isn't written that way anymore. I know. It's fun that, I mean, this is not germane necessarily to specifically Murder, She Wrote, but I do think Murder, She Wrote uses it probably one of the most effectively of any of its kind of genre, like these kinds of series. But I I love how you put that because that's something I think we've really lost with streaming and like with the sort of just blaze through the episode and without those kinds of emotional breaks and climaxes, like those are the things that sort of make television work and like yes. or made i should say television work it's something that i like you as a child of the 80s and 90s kind of miss that i totally miss it and it's 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 um watching that was how i learned how television worked mhm like i remember being a little kid and understanding like that's the function of a commercial break and that's how you lead up to a commercial break narratively and oh, it's 45 minutes past the hour now we need to have the aha music right like like I learned how to how the story was told. Like mm-hmm. oh, I I am just such a sucker for like network television. I love it. Yeah, and I think that like I said, with the advent of DVR and other technologies that sort of can allow us to skip commercials, while I enjoy them on a practical level, I also kind of miss that sort of as you say, glued to your TV experience. Which the scene with the gun is so emblematic of that phenomenon. Hmm. So we have one other um, guest actor we should talk about, Tej, um, who is the woman who plays Thelma Vante, the secretary. Mm-hmm. June Havoc. She is such a sort of like imperious, bizarre woman. She's played by June Havoc, and she's going to come back in season six in one of those episodes that doesn't have Angela Lansbury in it. Oh. And she plays this sort of Agatha Christie-esque woman on a, a caper on the high seas. Oh, okay. It's hands down my least favorite episode of the show. Maybe only second to Powder Keg. Really? Yeah. But she's really interesting. And I think she's interesting in this, too. She's just like a bizarre woman, right? Yeah, because she doesn't really have like much of a narrative role to play. It just turns out she's blackmailing someone. Um, Mm -hmm. But she's not really that important. Like she's not like Sydney or the couple who are trying to clear Mm -hmm. their names or all that stuff. But there's just something. There's still a touch of that particular it's not glamour necessarily but there's a certain kind of it's not quite gravitas either but there's just a weightiness to the performance of some of the old stars of hollywood which translates to tv and it did even at the time like in the last days of the studio system but it's so obvious in these like 1980s tv shows in particular when these kinds of people show up and she's a great example of that because she's just so much larger than life and larger than Mm -hmm. her narrative role demands of her mm-hmm. but you just want to spend more time with this character just because she's so memorable and that's a tribute to the actress's ability to sort of convey that it's because of the acting yeah and i think you and i have talked about that before with other people and especially those who have like scenes with lansbury and how it's so weird that because lansbury is doing television acting and it's very naturalistic and she's jessica and she's subdued and these people will be you know, with their transatlantic accents mm-hmm. and being sort of larger than life. And it's like, you you guys are in different, 
you're performing in different shows right now. Right. Um, but it makes it kind of like it's kind of like you can't take your eyes off of her, even though she's such a minor character. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's true also of the, you know, the main couple who are themselves also obviously veterans of Hollywood. And yes. um, so I think that that's true with them as well. Like that's uh, Jeffrey Lynn and Martha Scott, who plays Sam and Georgia Wilson. Like they too have a little bit of that weightiness, I think, to their screen presence, which makes them just as compelling. And I also, you know, I found that Georgia in particular was an interesting character because we're introduced to her as a sort of um, lower level waitstaff at the hotel that Jessica's staying in. And like, you know, she comes to Jessica's room and takes a real risk because as she says, I could get fired for coming Mm -hmm. to a guest's room. And I just, I found that to be a really interesting plot development that, you know, that sets her up as a figure of, you know, sympathy right from the get go. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So the episode actually opens with Jessica having lunch with somebody we learn is from her publishing house. And he's trying to essentially convince her to monetize on all the publicity surrounding her solving murders by like going on talk shows and stuff, because he thinks it'll help sell books. And I thought that it's only like a few lines of dialogue, right? But that's sort of the premise of why she's in this place in the first in the first instance. And and so Wilson's wife walks by and hears this conversation and hears that like Jessica's good at solving mysteries, right? And that's what triggers her to like ask for help. But I just I love that like I love that the series is acknowledging that at this point Jessica's kind of becoming a you know a media phenomenon for the fact that she's a famous author who also solves real life uh-huh. crimes because she's got like 60 under her belt at this point like it probably would attract some news attention right yeah and like i said i just think it's really lovely the way that you know that georgia presents herself as such a you know not frail exactly but certainly someone who's on her last leg like she's you know sort of exhausted Mm -hmm. all the resources to exonerate her husband who as she points out is just kind of like waiting to die so when we first meet him he is very dilapidated and just has given up hope as one would after spending 30 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit like that would be life draining and how sweet that she's like stood by him all this time too right i mean i i really wanted us to talk about that because you and i often talk about what what is the moral universe of murder she wrote Mm -hmm. and i think in this episode um it's really asking us to question things about the jurisprudence system because we're told at the end like the guy's son knew that he was rich and powerful and the DA would do what he said. And he convinced him to go after Wilson, knowing that Wilson did not commit Miss Murder, right? And so um, this is why we need things like the Marshall Project, right? Like, this is all about, like, what happens when we falsely arrest and imprison people. And I think that's a pretty interesting uh, and potentially controversial topic for Murder, She Wrote to wade into, in Murder, She Wrote fashion, they don't wade mm-hmm. in, like, as polemically as they could. But the very fact that we're, like, questioning that, right? Like, who else has been imprisoned that shouldn't be? Right. Uh, I think is it's really fascinating they're taking on that idea. Yeah, and I like that, you know, that that, too, is an inversion of, or an implicit critique of, like, film noir's sensibility, in which film noir as a genre proposes that everyone is corrupt. Everyone's that, guilty. <laughs> right. right. And so, like, it makes sense that he would be in prison even if he didn't necessarily commit the crime just because that's the way that film noir's narrative or moral universe works because there is no morality because everybody is equally corrupt and that there is no escape for the damned whereas murder she wrote as you have just pointed out is much more of a 
an optimistic series and that I think that that's why its ending is so effective is because it's in such sharp juxtaposition to the source to the source material. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I-, I love that they kind of don't shy away at the end. Like once the guy finally admits what he's done, um, the wife kind of goes off on him. She's like, you've taken 30 years of his life. She's, I mean, she's yelling at him and nobody really stops her. And I think everyone kind of feels the same way, right? Like, this is a horrible thing to do to someone, not just, not just that he was set up for murder, but it's the fact that like his whole life was ruined. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, like 30 years is a long time. Yeah. The prime of your life has been spent behind bars. Yeah. Because of the actions of someone else. It's horrifying. Yeah. And I think that that's I think that's why that performance does a lot of like heavy lifting in terms of both story and sort of ethos is because it really sort of brings home to us how much has been lost, but also you know accentuates how loyal she is that she is you know, as you said earlier stayed by him and hasn't she never questioned that he did it like that's a huge like thing I mean even because his story was so fantastic too teach like. His story is that his employer was going to pay him $10,000 to clean up his suicide to make it look like a murder. I mean, that's a ridiculous story, right? And he wasn't going to do it because he felt weird about it. But then when the guy was already dead, he took the money. (laughs) He was like, okay, guess this is happening, right? And he takes the money and leaves. And that's how he's able to be framed. But, like, can you imagine, like, going home and telling your wife, like, and she's like, I believe you. And I believe you're being set up and I will stand by you through this. And I will wait 30 years for you to be released from prison. Yeah. And I mean, what I enjoyed, too, is the extent to which this episode brings in a lot of other narrative threads. Like there's also the former business partner of the of the like the murder suicide guy. There's like his granddaughter who's trying to preserve his legacy. Like there's all kinds of like, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. what are ultimately red herrings. But I think that the episode uses them pretty effectively Mm -hmm. to keep us off the trail until the very end. And is a critique of the same sort of rich white guy narrative that the series has been doing for so long, mm-hmm. right? Because they've sort of fallen. Um, I mean, the reason the guy was going to kill himself was because they had lost their fortune. But the fact that they ever had a fortune is totally driving the culture of their family, which is what leads his son to do this horrible thing. And we get this lovely moment at the end when everyone's sort of walking out after he's confessed and he's sitting in a chair and behind him are portraits of his parents. And he's sort of thinking. Uh, and it's just this beautiful, like, cinematography moment of, like, that's driven his whole life, right? Is these two people. Mm, it's very Cirkian. Mm-hmm. As in Douglas Cirk. That's, uh, it reminds me of Written on the Wind in particular. Well, say more about that for people who don't know Written on the Wind. So Written on the Wind is this, you know, very frothy, overblown melodrama. Um, has a number of people, Dorothy Malone, Robert Stack, Rock Hudson... And one of the sort of driving narrative plots is that the two rich, spoiled kids are failures to their father, but who ends up dying of a heart attack while his daughter's like doing the sexy dance in a room. And it's all this, you know, pop Freudianism of 1950s Hollywood. But at the end, she's like caressing this oil, this model oil derrick while in front of her father's portrait. So it's very, you know, electric complex (laughs) thing going on um which just remind and cirque was very effective at using those kinds of mise-en-scene and scene constructions and that's what when you said that that's what it made me think of Mm -hmm. minus the sex right there's not a lot of sex in this episode (laughs) 
I think also, uh, you know, again, back to this idea of the what's the moral compass of the series, you know, the question hanging over the end of the episode is like, well, what are we going to do with this guy now that we know all of this information? Mm -hmm. And it's pretty telling that the Wilsons are the ones who say, you know what, let's leave it. Yes. In fact, it's he like he's the one who really makes an emphasis. He's like, you know. It's not worth pursuing. Like, uh-huh. I, I know what it's like to endure, you know, life behind bars. I don't want to ba- basically I don't want to subject someone else to that, which is in sharp juxtaposition to what his son wants, who's like, we need to go after this guy. Yeah. So it's a really striking difference of he wants vengeance for his dad. Yeah. So there's also kind of a, you know, a nice, you know, melodramatic plot going on there, too. That's not fully explored. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And where Jessica, I mean, ultimately, they turn to Jessica, of course, as one does in these moments of moral quandary, you ask J.B. Fletcher what she would do. And um, she says there's a difference between the ideal of justice and doing what's best. Yep. And Uh, this isn't the first time we've seen her like we saw it in the episode in Cabot Cove with the lesbian mom, mm -hmm. where she's like, look, you know, the law isn't always the right thing. And also in the episode where that the with the football coach and the guy who comes back to sort of find out who framed him for being put away for a crime he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. And Jessica says something effect like, I know you're right, but I really wish you had just stayed away. Like it might have been mm-hmm. better for us if you'd stayed away. Which by the way, my mom hates that episode. And she I have hates no idea what episode you're talking about. I'm saying mm-hmm, mm-hmm and I have like no idea what you're talking about. It's the one with with the the with the pudgy football coach, you know, you know, and like he, he the only football one I can think of is the Caitlyn Jenner episode no, from season one. Remember the deaf kid? No, and they they get into that. Maybe it's basketball, but it's not important. They they get into that like car. He gets into the car accident. He steals the bonds and he stones the guy to get. Remember, he clubs the guy in the head with a rock, and then oh, frames someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now you know what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about. There's a scary confrontation. Yeah, and and at the end, Jessica's like, I know that what you're doing is right, and you have the moral high ground, but I really kind of wish that you'd stayed away so that it didn't bring up all of this trauma for the town and the people we care about. So, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we're sort of led to see Jessica as being the moral voice that we're led to, you know. Yes appreciate and ourselves look to but it's not always as cut and dry as we might as audiences members like want it to be and i I appreciate that that sometimes jessica is also human in addition to being Mm -hmm. the sort of moral moral paragon Mm -hmm. yeah and it's i think says something interesting about her relationship with law enforcement too right that like she makes a difference between what is moral and just and what is legal Yes, exactly. Teach, let's look up the episode title so we can say it. Which one? The one oh, you were referencing. Uh, isn't that in season one? I don't know what episode you're talking about. I've just been faking it. You still don't know what episode I'm talking about? No. You've watched this show so many more times than me. When thieves fall out? When uh-huh. a prisoner is released from jail after serving 20 years, he proves he comes to Cabot Cove to prove he was wrongly convicted? I think that's it. I don't think he's a basketball coach, honey. He's a sports coach of some time. He was a college student. He was hitchhiking. He was forced off the road. He yep. found the driver dead, learned there were 100,000 bonds missing. Yep, that's the one. Okay, so now can you just say like, or I'll say it. That's fine. Oh, were you talking about when thieves fall out? 
Yes. Oh, yeah. TJ, we haven't watched this episode yet. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I that's just realized that. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I could have sworn that we had watched this one before. Well, what the fuck episode are you talking about? Yeah, but you've seen every episode of Murder, Street like 8,000 times. That's why I'm so confused. I'm starting to forget everything. Well, it's not menopause you're going through. You're going through senility. It's just, it's, I'm oversaturated with Murder, She Wrote, and I'm no longer the person who can be, like, um, encyclopedic about canon. So I can just restate that part and just say, as she reveals in, like, a future episode. Is, is, is that the one you were thinking of for sure, though? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Okay, let's, let's do it again. Okay, I'll just start over with what I was saying. Um... So, you know, it's also important. You know, that's like, totally going to make the outtakes, though. Yes. <laughs> Part where we were talking about an episode we haven't even watched yet. Yep. Pretending we knew what it was. <laughs> well, you were pretending you knew what it was. I knew what it was. <laughs> and, you know, it, this isn't. This will also won't be the last time that Jessica sort of espouses those less clear-cut opinions about law, what's right, the just, and the moral morality of it all. Like, you know, and, and if... To give a sort of preview of coming attractions and next season's episode where someone comes back to Cabot Cove and sort of stirs things up and reveals a dark secret from the town. He ends up being validated, but Jessica says something to the effect of, I know you're right, but I kind of wish you'd just stayed away rather than sort of disrupting and dredging all of this up. Which is really, my mom, by the way, hates that opinion. Like, she thinks that it's morally reprehensible for Jessica to say that. She thinks that Jessica should always encourage the truth to come out. Like, truth is always inherently good. Yep, that is my mom's sort of motto. She is incapable of any kind of deception. Yeah. So, it's just an interesting sort of through line that Jessica espouses those beliefs, you know, at several points throughout the course of the series. We should talk about the title of this episode, Tej. The days dwindle down. What do you think of that? I liked it. It was very evocative and it was not cutesy because you know I hate the cutesy titles for these. Simon says, color me dead. (laughs) (laughs) No, I thought this one was very effective and it was enigmatic and not entirely like clear about what it was talking about. I know because if you Google it thinking it's like, oh, this must be a line from poetry or something. It's actually not. Yeah, but it really works when you think about, as we talked about, like the the consequences of being locked away for 30 years, you know. And, and that she and that the wife wants vindication now before he dies mm-hmm. with his remaining time. Yep. So I, I quite like this title. And I think it's probably yeah. one of the best Murder, She Wrote titles, at least as the ones we've done so far. I hate this title because it makes me think of my own mortality. And so it always freaks me out. Oh, I mean, I regularly think about I'm going, that I'm going to die someday. So I'm, that's no f- unfamiliar thing to me. Yeah. I don't like the idea of days dwindling down. Mortality and obsolescence in Murder, She Wrote, another essay title. Are you making more essays? Yep. <laughs> so let's talk about fashion. Yes. Welcome the to only the J.B. Fletcher really... Fashion Corner. Yep. So the one thing that really stood out to me was the very first thing that J.B. is wearing is this like bright red dress. And I was talking with my partner the way that red particularly translates on television mm-hmm. and particularly television of the 80s because mm-hmm. of the technology used to like the, the stock and so forth. And like it just it reminded me of like Technicolor just because there's such a vividness to the red that she's wearing there at the beginning mm-hmm. that just kind of leapt off the screen at my face. And you know, what I'm did it do? For, it leapt <laughs> off the screen at my face. He's doing this really cute gesture along with this, you guys. 
I know you we you can't quite get the full effect, but since we are speaking of, we should record a video podcast someday so people can see how cute we look when we're doing this. Yeah, am I flailing about like you're a, flailing? You know, and neither a, of us like is a deranged like fully thespian. clothed either. My uh, der- flapping about like a deranged thespian, but anyway. <laughs> So that was the thing that sort of stood out to me. It's a great dress, but it's also, and it's peak Jessica Fletcher attire, but I also was just very struck by the the sheer chromatic beauty of it. The sheer chromatic beauty of it. Going for the real highfalutin gay today. That's my, (laughs) that is my, my sort of vernacular for the moment. Okay. Not as bad as, how did I say it? Workmanlike prose? That's not quite as pretentious. I'm never, ever, ever going to let you lift that down. To be fair, it was very workmanlike prose. It's a mass market paperback. That's how they're all written. I mean, my own prose is usually pretty workmanlike. I'm not judging that. I'm just saying. I mean, I was judging. What What do you mean by workmanlike then? Like, because that there's like an inherent... I think inferiority in that, like people who work hard versus like, you know, which implies like manual labor as lesser than or something, ex- ex- intellectual okay. wait, labor, wait, wait, wait. which yeah, is more gonna, sophisticated, gonna right? You right there. Okay. I just feel the need to remind you that my, I come of like humble stock, like my parents. I know you do. That doesn't mean that I don't have my own complex and It doesn't mean you're not a giant raging snob too. I mean- I don't think either of us has room to judge the other for being snobby. Like, we're very snobby <laughs> in very similar ways. Very different so ways. Don't let, oh. don't let Bridget fool all of you with this woman of the people nonsense. Like, she is just <laughs> as much of a text and prose snob as I am. For all of her talk about... I am not a prose snob because I like prose to get the job done. Um, especially for f- genres like mystery and romance. Mm. Because the the formula is more important. I hate florid prose, which is often why I struggle to read your writing. I love you so much. Well. You're a much more florid writer. That is absolutely true. I am much more of a, yeah. uh, and, but I, I also I know, have a lot of patience for cutesy writing and some of your writing can be very cutesy. So <laughs> we're just like trading barbs at each yes. other right now. Well, your writing is overwrought. Well, yours is cutesy and that's worse. No, I didn't say, I didn't. Okay. Uh, don't put words in my mouth. I didn't say it was worse. I was just returning the favor <laughs> since you. I launched an ad hominem attack on my own prose. <laughs> okay. This is the Let's high quality the ban- episode. This is the high quality banter people tune into the Kevaco Gazette for. You say that every episode. And it is. It's still true. <laughs> and you know what? I'm sure there's some listener out there who every time you say it is like, this is exactly when I tune out. <laughs> well, they're free to do so. <laughs> okay. Let's get back to the episode. That's all I got. That's all I got. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. Stay tuned next week for the end of season three. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.